back to Half the Battle. I'm your host as always, Daniel Levy, and normally your co-host is Shaq, but today we have a very special guest. My man, Newsome MMA, is going to be recapping Justin Gaethje's epic KO over Edson Barboza right here, right now, on Half the Battle. Adam Newsome, what's going on, man? Yeah, everything's going good, man. Uh, really excited to uh, make my debut on Half the Battle. I think it's... Uh... It's been a long time coming, right? Absolutely. I mean, long overdue. One of my good friends, one of the sharpest minds in the game over there, repping the UK scene. You know, we got a lot of love for everyone in the UK over here. So, man, I'm excited to talk uh, this past weekend's fights. And let's get right down to business because Justin Gaethje, he didn't just beat Edson Barbosa, Adam. He went out there, knocked him out in the first round. And what was so impressive to me is that as soon as the bell rang, he starts chopping him down. And it wasn't just regular leg kicks, Adam. It was calf kicks which has become the new trend in MMA because there's not really a defense to to the calf kicks people talk about oh why didn't he turn his leg out to check well go to the practice room and let me know how well checking calf kicks works because it doesn't work at all basically the only way to avoid them is to move out of the way of them and the fact that Justin Gaethje set the tone with three calf kicks in a row kind of let Edson Barboza know that listen you might have this reputation of being the hardest kicker in the UFC but now you're fighting me yeah I, I totally agree man and it's it, it was actually it was a bit surreal to see Edson Barboza have trouble with somebody kicking him for once. You know, it's always the other way around and the fighters just trying to trying to come up with some sort of defense to to stay away from the kicks of Barboza, which we all know is unbelievably and ridiculously dangerous. But yeah, it was actually refreshing to see because that was the one thing that that as as fight fans we were all debating throughout fight week and even when this fight was announced you know who's going to win the the leg kick battle and i actually joked on my own podcast as well and said look if if nothing else happens apart from a leg kick war and whoever drops first you know losers that i would be happy with that and funnily enough like 20 30 seconds in they were just trading leg kick for leg kick so yeah it it, it was crazy but he, like you said even Gaethje was the one getting the better of Barboza. You know, Barboza was the one that seemed to be struggling initially with with those uh, low calf kicks, and he was firing back at Gaethje. Gaethje was walking back through him. It, it was everything that uh, it was everything that we wanted to see, or everything that I wanted to see anyway. But man, like the fight was too short for me. I wanted to see more. Well, you know, for a for a short fight, it did win fight of the night, which was kind of interesting because a lot of people might have thought that the technical battle between Sodiq Youssef and Shaman Mraz could have got it. But when I go back and I rewatch Gaethje and Barboza, now I understand why they got fight of the night because those moments when they were just standing toe-to-toe trading at each other and even Edson's returns when he was swinging those left hooks, I mean, that's the kind of stuff where the whole crowd is up on their feet and those moments, I mean, it's so electric because you knew for a fact one guy is going to go down. Those two, they made an agreement. We're going to stand and bang until one man falls, and that's exactly what happened, Adam. Exactly, yeah. And like I say, I, I would have wished it had gone on for a little bit longer, but, you know, you, you can't complain for, with, with what you saw for sure. You know, like I say, the, the trading of the leg kicks is is the one element I think everybody wanted to see. And, you know, Gaethje pushed forward and he landed the shots and, you know, there's a couple of things in, in that fight that, you know, mentally and physically that could have played a part. You know, after we've seen it back, you know, Barboza was posting pictures on uh, social media of uh, of his eye, you know, claiming an eye poke. And, you know, I suppose he does have, uh, have a little bit of a case. Whether it changes the outcome or not, I'm not too sure because Barboza fights better at range with distance and Gaethje just shut that down straight away. And then there's the whole... Um, Ed Barboza's wife or girlfriend, you know, going into going into labor that night as well. And they got the call at 
uh, I think it was half past two in the morning in, in the UK time, which when you actually look back to when they started fighting, man, it, were, it would have been roughly just before Barboza walked out. So, you know, the mental game, he could have had a lot of things on his mind. I don't know. He, it, it was an amazing, it was, it was for a short fight, it was one of the better short fights that you'll ever see. Yeah, and for Edson Barbosa, first of all, I got to take my my cap off as he's you know he welcomed a new a new baby into this world. So I think that's a lot more important than than a fist fight on a Saturday night inside a steel cage against another grown man. So much respect to Edson Barbosa because you know he might have lost this fight, but he's winning at life by by being a father by bringing in a new life to this world. So my hats off to him. But as far as this matchup was concerned. You know, man, I don't think it was the eye poke that's the reason he got knocked out. Because, you know, when you get eye poke, the ref comes in, you, you get up to five minutes to, to recover, man. If you want to take the full five, you're allowed to do that. He, he elected not to. But as far as when they started fighting, I got to go back to the calf kicks. I mean, right off the bat, bell rings, four calf kicks in a row. And not only does that shut down your movement, but it has to send a psychological message to a guy like Edson, who's known for being the the heaviest kicker in the lightweight division, maybe even in UFC history. Justin kind of let him know off the bat that, hey, man, there's a, there's a new sheriff in town. He chopped down those legs. And then once uh, once the movement started getting a, a little bit slower, then you saw Gaethje use that forward pressure, which has historically given Edson Barboza fits. And uh, when Edson started circling left, that right-hand shot, that overhand right, that was all she wrote, man. Yeah, and I, I agree. I, I, don't think, um, I don't think the eye poke would have changed or possibly changed the, uh, the the way the fight went down and how it finished, you know. Um, I just think it's a talking point. It's one up for debate, you know. It, it's always going to be that case when you've watched a fight of this uh, of this calibre and then, it, you know, pictures start emerging and then you start looking at slow-mo replays and things like that. So it was just a talking point, really. But um, Gate, listen, Gaethje rocked Barboza before that anyway. So for me, Gate. Gaethje was just dialed into that fight, uh, like you said, straight off the bat, four four low calf kicks, which again, like it's it's a new weapon that fighters are using, especially fighters from ATT as well. You know, Barbosa will have been kicked in his legs a lot during fight camp, and to to watch him have that sort of reaction instantly within ten twenty seconds of the fight was just like I say, it was something that we're not. I don't. I, I very highly doubt we're going to see. Um, Barboza ever have that sort of reaction from from a low kick from from any other opponent? So yeah, awesome fight uh, again for for how long it lasted. And man, Gaethje's dialed in right now for sure. Yeah, he definitely is. And you know, a lot, some guys have went out there and tried to trade kicks with Edson Barboza. I know you remember that fight with Dan Hooker, and Dan Hooker's trying to stand at range, and you know he's being cute, throwing a couple kicks at Edson at uh, Edson. But when Gaethje did it, I mean, the calf kicks right off the bat just to immobilize your opponent. It was just a different, uh, a different level here, man. It was incredible to see. But as far as matching up Gaethje with someone else, now here's my idea, and I know it might not make sense right now, but this is just literally, genuinely the fight I want to see. I really want to see Gaethje fight Khabib. I don't know why. I just think that I think that a lot of guys are broken before they even step into the cage with Khabib. And I think that Gaethje, obviously, he's got the D1 wrestling background. And people mention how he's never taken anyone down. And this may or may not be true. I'd have to obviously go back through his entire career to determine if that's true. But I think the more important point that people need to talk about is the fact that he's able to keep all these fights standing. I mean, that's credit to his wrestling. That's credit to his wrestling as well. That he's able to use his wrestling in reverse, keep fights standing where he wants. Because if he wasn't a D1 wrestler, I'll tell you right now that a lot of these guys that are getting chopped down with his leg kicks would have taken him down and they haven't been able to Adam yeah exactly and I 
I really don't hate that matchup either, you know, with with Gaethje and and Habib because Gaethje's got that wrestling in his back pocket, and like we like you've just said, he doesn't use it, and that's to his credit. He wants to create exciting fights, but although Habib is an absolute monster and a beast of a wrestler, out of every single fighter that Habib's fought, I think he's going to have more trouble trying to get Gaethje down and keep him down. And that's the key thing for, for Habib. I think he can he can take any man down in the world, but it, then once the wrestling side of it is, has gone past and the, is their opponent's on the mat, then the grappling starts to come into it. And we have seen um, fighters shoot at Gaethje before, and Manny scrambles his reversals and his ability to get back up to his feet. He's just so tricky and, un- and unorthodox on the mat. And you've got to think to yourself, you know, can Habib take him down and can he keep him down? And for me, it's talking about Justin Gaethje against uh, against Habib in, in this sort of light, I think he's probably got the better chance of of, of staying upright compared to any of uh, Habib's previous opponents. Yeah, I agree with that. And obviously, you know, people want to see Gaethje and Tony. Look, obviously I'm down with that. I'm not going to say no if that's the fight, but I was kind of under the impression that Tony might be taking a little bit of time off. So whatever Tony is doing, you know, obviously you got to respect his decision. That guy's such an animal, such a beast, and I wish him all the best. So if that's the fight, I'm down to see it. And also, Max and Dustin are fighting in Atlanta next week, so the winner of that could get could get Khabib as well. I'm just suggesting that if they match up Khabib and Gaethje, uh, I will be tuning in with my eyes wide open, Adam. Yeah, absolutely, man. And, you know, another good point to make, and uh, I did allude to this on, on last Saturday night as well, you know, Gaethje, before, uh, I think it was even, no, it was after the, the Dustin Poirier fight, Gaethje was saying, you know, make sure that you keep watching me. I'm I'm full of excitement. I go down there to, to fight and to go to war, and you better enjoy it while it lasts because I've only got five left. But Justin Gaethje has took next to no damage in his last two fights. So the dude's extending his career as well. I'm actually really glad you brought that up because that leads into another point that I wanted to talk about. And you remember when Gaethje was coming off those two losses to Eddie Alvarez and Dustin Poirier, you know, two top five guys on planet Earth. And people were going with this narrative into the James Vick fight about how, you know, the guy's a walking punching bag and he can't take too many more shots and this and that and he's drooling, all these things. And it's like, guys, he was only 18 and 2. Excuse me, he was 19 and 2 going into the James Vick fight. It's not like, and the two guys that he lost to, Eddie and Dustin, like I just mentioned, a former champion in Eddie and a potential future champion in Dustin. Maybe he's not a future champion. He's a former number one contender. So the bottom line is those two guys that did beat him were very legit. And also, it's not like they just ran through Justin Gaethje. Justin had his moments in both of those fights. The Eddie fight, he was on his way to winning a decision. He got caught in the third round. It was first L time. And the Dustin fight, we all thought he won that third round and he got caught in the fourth. So things happen in those kind of fights against high caliber opponents. But people wrote him off to the point where he was the underdog against James Vick. He was was uh he was an underdog against Edson Barboza as well man so I feel like people had this uh this narrative about Gaethje that oh you know a couple more fights and the guy is gonna barely be hanging on by a thread and I completely disagree man I think that he doesn't get the credit he deserves he has a 20 and 2 record and out of those 20 wins 17 of them are via are via knockout right so this guy is as dynamic as they get and i feel like now with those last two performances behind his back two clean first round knockouts where he had to take no damage whatsoever i feel like it's elevated him to a to another level in the sense that yeah maybe 
you know, people can sit here and be like, oh, he didn't have to go through any adversity in those two fights. Yeah, but those are two top 10 guys. He just ran through guys that have fought many people and haven't been ran through like that, Adam. Exactly. And you know what, from, from my perspective, for, for what we see next of Gaethje, like I say, I, I don't, I don't hate the, uh, the Khabib fight at all. I've got two names written on my list and, uh, one of them before I reveal and before everyone starts to, you know, to throw hate and stuff like that. I'm just looking from a fighter perspective. So I'm not looking what's happening outside the cage, what's going on in lives and things like that. I'm just talking about who I think Gaethje could have the most exciting fight with inside the octagon and inside the UFC cage. And the first name that comes to my mind is Conor McGregor because it's going to be a stand-up war. We're not going to see Connor get getting taken down. We're going to see Connor being able to land punches on Justin Gaethje. We're going to see uh, how durable Connor is on the feet, especially you know with his legs, because that's what Gaethje likes to do. He chops that tree down, and um, I, re I I would honestly love to see Justin Gaethje versus Connor McGregor inside the cage. And if that fight couldn't happen, the other the other name that's on my list in uh, in, in replacement of Connor would be Tony Ferguson. And again, that's someone that you've just spoken about. You know, we don't really know what's happening with, uh, with, with Tony right now, but again, another fight I'd like to see, you know, he's the boogeyman. He, he, he stays in there and he gets tougher throughout the rounds. He can take punishment. He can take damage and he can deliver it as well. And again, I just think, uh, Justin Gaethje versus Conor McGregor or Justin Gaethje versus Tony Ferguson has both got fight the nights written all over them. And, I actually think there'll be two fights that go on much longer than his last two fights. What's your thoughts, Dan? I love both those matchups, man. And I'm really glad you mentioned those two because for, for some reason I was like, oh, man, he's about to mention Ayakinta. And I'm really glad you didn't suggest him. Now, that being said, to the Connor matchup, dude, I fucking love that matchup because obviously on the surface they're going to stand and bang and that's what's exciting about it in itself. But what's really exciting to someone like me who's very familiar with both their styles is that we know uh, pressure broke Edson Barbosa. You know who else pressure breaks? It breaks Conor McGregor. And if McGregor can't get off on that left-hand shot, I mean, chances are that he's going to fold. And the guy that's going to keep going forward the entire time is Justin Gaethje. And also a guy that sacrificed his body just for the entertainment of the fans is Justin Gaethje. He absolutely deserves a fight with Conor McGregor. So if they want to go ahead and line that up for him, because in my opinion, he deserves to cash out. He deserves the money fight. He deserves red panty night. I'm totally down with Justin Gaethje versus Conor McGregor. So, and I mean, like they're trying to do Conor and Khabib too. I mean, look, I want to see it because it was fun watching Khabib rain down uh, ground and pound from the heavens on Conor. It was a lot of fun. I, I wouldn't mind watching him get his ass beat again. But between you and me, there's nothing competitive about Khabib and and Conor McGregor. The only thing that's nice is that the ticket sales and the pay per view buys that'll do well for the UFC. But as far as the matchup, there's nothing competitive about it. I mean, let's be honest here. One person got dropped in that fight, and it was not Khabib. Okay, so I, I'm with you, man. I like Gaethje versus uh, Conor McGregor as well, and I, I I fully believe that he's earned the right to get red panty night, Adam. Yeah, exactly, and I I agree. I don't. I actually don't want to see uh, Abib and Conor McGregor again. We've seen it once. A load of stuff kicked off afterwards. Suspensions were handed out. And, you know, we don't need that again. And it will happen again. Something like that definitely will. Um, I, I don't see a scenario where, where it doesn't, especially with uh, their, you know, their social media goings on at the minute. You know, it's not good. And I, I just don't think it would be wise for the UFC to book that fight anyway. So, you know, we're moving forward with... Uh, with Max and Dustin fighting for the interim uh, title next week. 
you would, you know, the interim champion you would assume would get that title shot against Habib once he's back from from whatever suspension he's serving. And then, like you say, if 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 McGregor hasn't retired and he is going to be coming back to the cage, he's got to have an opponent. And why not just engage it? You know, it's it's a fight that that could potentially headline a pay per view even though it's not uh, a title fight. So Conor McGregor will, will get what he wants in that respect of being, you know, being the, having the main eyes on him, being in the main event. So uh, yeah, I think it makes total sense as long as obviously McGregor hasn't retired. And as far as Edson Barboza is concerned, I feel like now he's officially entered that part of his career where now it's about either fun fights or building up up and coming contenders because I, I don't want to sit here and put a cap on another man's career. I would never do that. But in my humble opinion, I do believe his title run is over now. And it's it's the fun fight stage of his career. So the options I was thinking for a guy like Edson Barboza, if uh, James Vick decides to not go up to 170, which I hope he goes to 70, but if he decides to stay at 55s, I want to see Edson Barboza versus James Vick. The reason why is because obviously they both have the KO losses to Gaethje. But what I like about that matchup itself is, is that Vic, you saw a little bit of a weakness in his game in terms of receiving leg kicks. We know Edson Barboza is allegedly the best uh, kicker in the lightweight division. Now Gaethje might be that guy, but let's say Edson's the second best kicker in the lightweight division, so that's going to present problems to Vic. And on the flip side, we know Edson has a tough time dealing with trouble and straight punches to the face. I mean, he's been dropped with a jab before. We know Vic's got a very long jab, a nice straight right. I want to see Edson Barboza versus James Vic at 155 pounds. Uh, if Vic stays at 55. Yeah, again, it's another good fight, man. And you could argue, you know, you, there's a lot of there's a lot of different opponents that that you can pick for Barboza right now. And I would still make them all top 15 fights. So James Vic is a good fight. Um, the rerunning against Paul Felder would be a decent fight. Donald Cerrone would be a good fight as well. So there's there's a lot of different fights. And I I agree. You know, I I feel that. I still feel that Barbosa has got a lot to give in the sport, but in regards to a title run, if it was any other uh, any other era for the lightweight division, I still think he would. Uh, I still think he would be in for for a shout at you know heading towards a title shot. But the lightweight division man is so stacked with with talent right now, and it, it's as brutal as one loss can send you all the way back down. You know. Can he climb back up? There's a possibility that he could, but how long that would take him in regards to uh, them trying to sort the lightweight division out and giving the right fights to the right people, contender fights to the right fighters, and then making the right title fights as well. It's it, it's a big ask for him, you know. Justin Gaethje, um, again, he was up there, lost his fight to, to Dustin Poirier. Now he's bounced back with two knockouts wins back to back again first round not taking any damage and you know he, he still feels that he's he's a long way from that title shot I know you've mentioned the the Habib fight I don't think they make that I think it's a dream fight um and it's one that we'd like to see but I I think Habib has got to fight the winner of uh, the main event next week so like I say even even for Gage you're bouncing back with two knockouts in a row he, he still feels like he's he's quite a long way away from a potential title shot. So for Barboza, I'm just, I agree with you. I'm just not sure if he can do it with the lightweight division being the shark tank that it is. Yeah, definitely. But one thing I will say is as quickly as a loss will derail you, a big win makes everyone forget because 
while you do have a point that Gaethje might be one or two fights away from a title shot, you know, two fights ago, people were like, oh, yeah, this guy uh, was a bust in the UFC. He's gotten knocked out two fights in a row, but now he's won two fights in a row via brutal knockout. Seems like everyone forgot, except maybe me and you, right? So I, I think that the fans in the sport have a very short-term memory, and if Edson Barboza can go out there and get another highlight reel knockout, his name will enter the mix once again. But yeah, it's going to take some time for sure. Now, the co-main event, this was unbelievable. Uh, Jack Hermanson went out there, submitted uh, the Henzo Gracie black belt, David Branch, in under a minute. Now, let's talk about this because obviously all, all listeners of Half the Battle know we've been high on Jack Hermanson for a very, very long time from the five-unit bet against uh, Talis Latis. And even prior to that, I mean, I actually... It, fun, funny enough, when he came into the UFC, I wasn't as impressed with him. You know, he had the, he was known as being the top uh, Euro wrestler outside the UFC and this and that. And when he fought Scott Askham, I was thinking, man, my boy Askham's going to go out here and outstrike him and do the whole bit. And it was actually Jack that went out there and outstruck him. So I was under the impression that Jack was, you know, a Euro striker. I thought he kind of was like the new Christoph Jocko. At the time, Jocko was, was, you know, the king shit. He was 19-1 and one at the time. He was like the dark horse of the middleweight division, had that fancy footwork, which Jack also has. So for some reason, I was under the impression that Jack is some smooth, uh, you know, Euro striker. So then when he went on the mic and talked about how he's got the best ground and pound at 185 pounds, you know, I, I kind of laughed. I kind of thought it was this big joke. Then you see what he did to Brad Scott and Alex Nicholson, and it's like, oh, shit. When this guy gets on top of people, they don't get back up. And uh, fast forward, his last three fights in a row, as soon as he gets on top, the fights are over shortly after. And here against David Branch, I mean, way to uh, way to make a statement against a guy that was very, very highly respected in the sense that this fight was a pick em. And, you know, people were saying that Jack has never seen anything like Hermanson in his life. Excuse me, that Jack has never seen anything like Branch in his life and this and that. Well, uh... Shit, it turns out Branch has never seen anything like Hermanson in his life. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, going back to the Scott Askham fight, I mean, leading up to Hermanson's debut, I, I'm 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 the same as you, man. I've been high on Hermanson for, for a number of years as well. And I've bet him in pretty much every single one of his fights as well. And the, I th- he was regarded as, you know, a, a good wrestler and probably the the one of the best wrestlers in Europe that's uh, that was unsigned to the UFC. But I think the reason why we didn't see him go to the mat too much with Scott Askham or all, all those, all that, well, three years ago, seven fights ago, um, Scott Askham's got a really underrated ground game. And again, because, because he puts guys out and he likes to strike and you just don't see that ground game from him. And, in fact, we did see a bit of it against uh, against Manson. You know, they went to the floor momentarily. Uh, Scott locked up. Uh, I think it was uh, a heel hook, and he was squeezing tight. And I think it. I think a little like part of a Manson was thinking, "Shit, you know, I'm I'm winning on the feet, and you know, I've I've just put myself into a bit of trouble on the mat." So I think he did stay away from it. But one thing's for sure: at, at that point, especially from a UFC perspective, he was he was very green. And since Scott, you know. He lost to uh, Cesar Mutanch relatively, um, relatively comfortably, I think, for for Mutanch, you know, blast double and then uh, submitted him not long after that. And I think every time that we've seen Jack Manson go in the cage, win or lose, he's come out the other side of it into his next fight so improved. It's like, it's almost like he does analyze his own game so much and just fixes any any potential holes and the same with the Thiago Santos fight again I, I bet him in that fight and he did get finished but 
we haven't seen Amanson put himself in in that position where he's he's letting somebody else dictate the pace of the fight and put himself in that sort of danger. He's just the dude's drastically, rapidly improving fight after fight after fight. And he's looking like somebody that's now, well, he's top 10 ranked for a start. So he's now a top 10 UFC middleweight. And he's he's looking like a fighter that's that's going to be so hard to beat for opponents. And what can we say about last week with Dave Branch, man? He came out. Branch tried that fence grab as well. And anybody that um, that knows me, follows me, talks to me, that's my pet peeve in this sport, man. Fence grabbers. I cannot fucking stand fence grabbers. Branch tried grabbing that fence. Didn't. Does that matter to Jack Amanson? No. He stayed in there. You could see him sliding for that for that guillotine as uh, as soon as uh, he. he, You know, Branch showed his back, and it doesn't. It didn't matter at all that he went to grab that fence. Amanson just pulled him off it and choked him out anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And that guillotine is something that he's been working on for a while now because you saw glimpses of it in that Talis latest fight. First of all, before I talk about this guillotine that he's been working on and perfecting his last three fights in a row, what about the fucking heart on a guy like Hermanson? Because, yeah, you guys know I'm gonna I'm about to talk about how he broke his rib one you know one round into the latest fight and then finishes him in the third. But prior to that, if you saw that fight against Tiago Mejeda Santos, you saw how he went down, you even go back and you watch the pre-fight interviews where he's talking about how, you know, he was kind of questioning himself, he was having a little mental stuff going on, well, the way he's turned things around, man, and not only that, you talk about his game planning, how well prepared he is, you're 100% correct, because over there at Frontline Academy, man, he gets such good one-on-one work, and really, he brings in training partners specifically for each fight, I really like what he's doing over there, I feel like he breaks down his opponents in a way where he knows them better than they know themselves. And then when he goes out there, it's not a surprise to him what's going to happen. Like for him, you know, for us to see someone go out there and boot sweep Dave Branch in the first 10 seconds and fucking end up right in side control, to us it's like, oh shit, you know, Dave Branch, he's the Henzo Gracie black belt. He's this really strong guy. You know, he knocked out my head. He's done, he's done the whole bit. But for Hermanson, there was no surprises that he was able to boot sweep a guy like Dave Branch and end up in side control because that's exactly what he had been drilling this entire camp. So for him, it's like, okay, I see the opening there. I'm using this guy's momentum against him. I get on top of him. And Jack has so much confidence when he's on top of these guys. He literally feels like he's up there with, with a Habib Nurmagomedov or even uh, you know a couple years back when Luke Rockhold was known for having some of the best uh, top control and ground and pound in the UFC. Now Jack Hermanson is that guy. Because what I've noticed is, when he gets on top of guys, the fights are over shortly after. Now, back to this guillotine that we were talking about that he's been actually trying to set up his last couple fights in a row. Man, unbelievable. Because against Talos Latis, obviously we mentioned, breaks his rib in that first round, has to overcome adversity. First strike he throws in the third round is a flying knee. And obviously, he went for that guillotine. Now, what was wrong in the latest fight, the reason he he wasn't able to finish it, is he only had control of the neck. But latest body wasn't controlled by the legs of Hermanson. As, as you know, with that guillotine setup, you're not just choking the guy out. You're also controlling his body so he can't pass to side control. If he does pass to side control and you are still hanging on to the guillotine, well, that's where the Von Flute choke comes in. Next week, when Ovince St. Pru fights Nikita Krylov in the rematch, you know Ovince won via guillotine the first time because when Nikita went for that guillotine, you know, he wasn't able to control the body, so Ovince was able to pass to side control and Von Flucho. You don't let go of that guillotine choke and you're in bottom side control. Shit's about to be over shortly after. Well, what's so incredible about the grip that Hermanson has is that he wasn't even controlling the body on Talis latest, and Talis had no chance to just pass over 
go to side control, Von Flu choke this guy. No, he had to address the choke itself, and that's Hermanson without controlling the body. Well, you take it further to the next fight against Mearshart, where he did make that slight adjustment. Now he is controlling the body, and you saw a black belt in Gerald Mearshart tap right away. Very next fight against Dave Branch. Boot sweeps him, side control. Dave Branch tries to get up, tries to you know grab the fence to help him back up. Immediately, Jack cinches up that, that guillotine. It's uh, with the arm in, by the way. But it's not a traditional arm and guillotine because the grip he has is very interesting. It's something I'm going to have to speak with my professor, uh, Guillermo Curry, about to see exactly what he did. But one thing I do know is his last two fights in a row, he was able to control the body. Therefore, he was able to get the first round guillotine. And that's the big adjustment he made from the Talis' latest fight. So to me... To see a guy who's known for his ground and pound, his top control, but now he's expanding his game. He tapped out two black belts in a row with a beautiful guillotine. Obviously, the one with Talos Latest, he almost had it. That's evolution right there, Adam. That is uh, someone who is learning from their mistakes, who's in there every single day, one-on-one, -on -one, getting the attention he needs. And I think he's primed for a title run right now. Yeah, he's definitely not out of the question for sure. I mean, I... I... Personally, I, I think he's got a long time left in in this game. You know, I don't, I wouldn't want to see, uh, I wouldn't want to see someone like Jack Manson being rushed at all. But man, the, the one thing that I just want to touch upon from what you've just said, and I'm glad you brought it up as well, is is the confidence because I I'm constantly talking about the mental game and how confidence plays a part, and you know, the mental game is so important in mixed martial arts because as as many as many greats have said in the past, you can have all the ability in the world, but Man, if you if you're not if you're not there mentally, then you're not going to amount to much at all. And you know, Tarlis Lates, Gerald Mearshart, Dave Branch, these are high high level Brazilian Jiu Jitsu artists, man. And he's gone out there and he's fared against Tarlis Lates, broken rib, swept him in the third round, finished him. You know, it was that bad that Mark Goddard went over to his corner in between the second and third round and just said, you, you need to make sure your fight is okay because he's calling out a bit and I don't I don't want to see it and I don't want to hear it anymore. Make sure your fight is okay. And he comes out there and absolutely, I mean, at this point, again, I bet Jack Manson because that's the common theme for me. And, you know, at that point, one of my buddies walked through the door and, you know, he, he was a bit bit late to the party and he was like, oh, how's the fight going second round? And I'm just like, dude, it's not looking good at all, you know. And Jack Manson turned it around on the ground as well. So, yes, he had the he had the guillotine locked in. Obviously, Tyler's late. He's um, managed to address that, like you've said. But, of course, we expect nothing less from somebody like Lates. And then Jack Manson still found a way to win that fight that dude fought for my money that night and everybody else's money as well and then you go into Gerald Mearshart who is a guy that has been submitted a lot in his career but the majority of his wins have come via submission and he is again he is a very savvy grappler and uh, again Jack Manson absolutely steamrolled him on on the floor and gave him a few opportunities as well to get back up and separate and you know it, it just didn't happen like that and Manson was so comfortable going back to the ground and then you go to Dave Branch another high level Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt and he taps him out in 11 seconds so it's going to get to a point where not only is jack manson confident right now and on top of the world and a guy like that with ability with him evolving with this confidence is going to be tough to beat as it is but man grapplers are going to come against him and not want to go to the ground with jack manson why would you want to go to the mat with jack manson why would you want to tie up against him he'll sweep he'll he'll sweep he'll throw he'll take he'll he'll reverse he'll take you down he's strong man 
a grappler isn't one going to go to the floor with him. And then his striking is good as well. He's aggressive. He mixes in combinations, low kicks, pressure, aggression. Man, the dude is going to be a fucking problem for so many fighters in that middleweight division. Yeah, I mean, he already is. And what's interesting, and I mean, we've already talked about this. I've already mentioned this. He comes out with a game plan for every single person he's fighting. I know it's easy to sit here and be like, oh, you get punched one time, that game plan goes out the window. Well, this dude had his ribs broken. He was in a tight arm triangle and Darce choke against Talos Latis. And uh, his game plan didn't go out the window at all. He still got to the position he wanted to be in to finish the fight. And now coming off wins over, finishes over three very high-level black belts. Like you mentioned, grapplers are going to be scared to tie up with him. And interestingly enough, that leads me to the next matchup I want for Jack Hermanson, which is against another very good grappler, a D1 wrestler and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. I'm talking about the former UFC middleweight champion, Chris, the All-American Weidman. That is the fight I want to see next. I'm going to tell you guys why. First of all, I love when fighters call other fighters out and don't say the whole, I'll fight whoever the UFC puts in front of me bullshit. You know, Jack Hermanson, he mentioned the Weidman name prior to this fight. He said, after I beat Dave Branch, I want Chris Weidman. Now, a lot of people might view that as, you know, he's looking past Dave Brand. I didn't look at it like that at all. He was so prepared for Branch. He knew exactly what he was going to do to him that in his mind, it was like, dude, I'm, I'm going to walk through this guy real quick. And then we're going to take things to, you know, the next level to get me to where I want to go. And that's that UFC title. Now, some people might say Weidman's too big of a step up. And uh, he is a step up in terms of the rankings. But let's not sit here and act like Weidman's really in a position to pick and choose his fights because the reality here is that Weidman's gotten knocked out in four of his last five fights. So if it's up to if it's up to his team, they probably do want a quote-unquote step down. Well, that's where Jack Hermanson comes in because I doubt Chris Weidman had even heard of him until last week. But the guys like me and you, we've known about him for years, right? But Chris Weidman, he probably, oh, he beat Dave Branch. Yeah, I'll fight this guy. I've been fighting Jacare, Kelvin, Musasi, Yoel, Luke, all these guys. He probably doesn't think it's a big deal. So I want to see that fight because, to me, we have seen Chris Weidman get uh, ground and pound TKO'd before against Luke Rockhold. And I want to see if Jack Hermanson is good enough to get on top of the former champion, the D1 wrestler, the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, a guy who many people consider to be the best grappler at 185 pounds for many years. I want to see if Hermanson's good enough to deal with that guy. If he gets on top of Chris Weidman and pounds him out, look the fuck out. Man, yeah, I, I agree. I, I like the fight a lot as well. And... um I, I don't think it's a step up. Well, it is in regards to the rankings. You know, it, you, you know, numbers don't lie. You know, and, and the name ranks. as well. Yeah, exactly. You know, Chris Weidman's ranked sixth, but then Luke Rockhold's in that mix as well. But now he's stepped up to light heavyweight. So you know, the, the they're not entirely accurate the rankings as as we're looking at them right now. So yeah, it is a step up in the rankings. But man, in in regards to performance, I don't see Jack Manson going into that fight. As, uh, as the betting underdog for sure like momentum's on his side confidence on his side and you know you can say quite the opposite for Chris Weidman right now and he's just in one of those unfortunate positions in his career and all fighters go through it now I did have a feeling you were going to say Chris Weidman as a potential um, next matchup for Jack Manson so what I've done is uh, I've I've gone for a different opponent like I say I'd, I don't want to I wouldn't want Jack Manson to be to be rushed. I think he is a guy that could, if he goes on a good run, break that top five. But again, 
the top that top five in the middleweight division is is a shark tank as well. So he's going to have to put in some good performances. But the guy that uh, the guy that I've picked as a, a good potential matchup as well is Derek Brunson. So again, Brunson D one wrestler uh, is wild, swings with power, um, and I just think that Brunson. Although I do believe Jack Manson would beat him, I think Derek Brunson could pose a lot of problems stylistically. So, like I say, he swings with power, and he's probably going to be one of the hardest punches maybe outside of uh, Maheta Santos that Jack Manson's fought, and we all saw how that fight ended. So he could be a bit wary of those punches. I would like to see sort of how he gets around that aggression of Brunson and how, uh, how he deals with a different type of aggressive striker but like i say brunson's got that d1 wrestling in his back pocket uh a guy that y'all romero was uh struggling to get down and keep down so um again brunson can be quite tricky to to take down and he's a he, you know he's good at getting back up to his feet and he's he's got decent grappling in that respect as well so it would be very interesting to see uh how a manson stylistically matches up against brunson but i think it's a winnable fight for him uh brunson again is a name that uh, well, I think he's a household name. I, I certainly would, would say that about Derek Brunson, um, a guy that's been in there with, with some of the best. So Brunson's got the experience edge on him. I, I think it would be a good a good fight, a good step up fight. And look, if he goes out there and takes Derek Brunson out, who's ranked eighth at the minute. So two ranks above where Jack Manson is right now, then we can start talking about that top five because, and I, I also think the same for Chris Weidman as well. I, I think Jack Manson's next, next fight is going to really determine where this, where this dude goes and whether it be Weidman, whether it be Brunson, I think, you know, this is all going on just memory though, right now, you know, I'm not obviously not putting any tape into, into any of these fights, but I believe Jack Manson would beat both of those guys and that propel up that division Man, that then makes it very inter- interesting for Jack Manson's next fight after that. Yeah, I mean, I can't disagree. I'm in for it. But the thing here is that after his last fight with Mershart, he kind of called out guys like Elias Theodoro, Brad Tavares, which are kind of like around the same ranking as, as a Derek Brunson. But now that he beat Branch and he is number 10, it kind of would be a little bit of a step back, a step back in terms of the rankings to fight a guy like Brunson. But... At the same time, if you want to build him up, you want to get him another win over a, a somewhat household name, I do understand it from that perspective. There is no guarantee, however, that Brunson's going to get past uh, <laughs> get past Elias Theodoro. So I really wanted I really wanted Jack Hermanson to fight Elias Theodoro because I'm super confident he'd get on top of him and the fight would be over shortly after. But now that Brunson and Theodoro are fighting, if he has to wait for the winner, it might put him out for a while, whereas there's that Sweden card coming up. I know Weidman's not booked. I know Hermanson's not booked. So I'm pulling for that. But at the same time, if they match him up with the winner of Elias and Brunson, I'm not going to say no. The only thing I can do is pray that the odds makers uh, give us a little uh, decent line there. So I'm with you, man. We'll see We'll see uh, which direction they head in. Now, the Coco main event featured Josh Emmett and Michael Johnson. Now, there's a storyline going out that Michael was cruising comfortably that he was about to win this 30-27 decision maybe that's true maybe that's not true I haven't personally seen the judges scorecards I did however think that Michael was edging it out but when I rewatched it because it's been on ESPN plus and I love ESPN plus you can literally rewatch these events the second they're over which is something you could never do in the Fox era so man ESPN has completely changed the game but I've rewatched this fight a couple times and Seemed like in the first round and the third round, 
Emmett was still landing some big shots, man. It seemed like in that third round, he was kind of setting him up for it. He, he tagged him really hard a couple times. Then when he finally landed the finishing blow, you saw how Michael went down. But up until that point, Michael was having a disciplined performance. It really seemed like he could have stayed on the outside for that last minute and kind of, you know, stay tight, stay sharp, and just run away from the guy and you possibly win a decision. But credit to Josh Emmett after every single thing that the guy's been through to not just step inside the cage again, which is a victory in itself in my eyes, but to go out there and defeat a guy who has a win over Tony Ferguson, has a win over Barboza, a KO win over Dustin Poirier. Now Emmett adds that to his resume, and in my opinion, he legitimizes himself as a featherweight contender. And the reason I say that is because he missed weight for the Lamas fight. So to me, even though it was it was brutal, it was beautiful, it was vicious, I was still kind of like, well, he's never really beat anyone at featherweight because he missed weight for his one big featherweight fight. Well, now he has beat someone at featherweight. He has made the weight. So shit, man, what do you think about uh, what, what happens next for Josh Emmett? Well, let's talk about the, the, the fight in general and what should have happened afterwards because how Josh Emmett didn't get that 50K bonus, man, I will never know. Like, if any guy on that card deserved that bonus, that was a brutal knockout. He didn't just... He didn't drop Michael Johnson, follow up with shots, make the referee save the day for Michael Johnson. The dude cracked Johnson and there was that split second where Johnson was stood pretty, you know, pretty upright. Hands were then low. He was then unconscious and he just fell back to the mat, like out, one bomb, out, done. How Emmett did not get a bonus for that, I, I don't know. But in regards to, in regards to how the fight was going, I feel that, Michael Johnson was going to win that decision. The first round was very close. The reason it was very close is because not a lot happened. When not a lot happens, it's sort of, you're looking at the little things like who is landing the slightly more volume, who is the one pushing forward, who is the one that's uh, that's looking good with movement. And I just feel, I feel it in the judges' eyes in that moment, they have to pick a winner for round one. And I just feel that at least two of them would have gone for Michael Johnson in, in that first round. The second round, I, I think, was clear. You know, Johnson was having fun in there, moving in and out, smiling, having a good time, landing on Emma and just really looking looking good, man. And, yeah, I, I, don't, I, I don't see how, the, how all three judges wouldn't have scored that second round for Johnson. It is weird because I did try looking for the scorecards and I couldn't find them because I was interested. Um, the third round, Emmett was clearly winning and he would have won uh, that third round on the judges' scorecards. I think the worst case scenario would have been for Michael Johnson if that fight had gone to the scorecards would have been a split decision win. But I do feel that he would have got, got the nod. But it didn't go there, you know, 45 seconds and... It's a little bit disappointing as well from Johnson's point of view because he he went into he went out of the second round and you know the the camera went over to his corner and his corner was pointing to his temple and just saying keep smart keep your head you know keep doing what you're doing and even though he was losing the round that's you know that's fine in my like I said in my opinion I feel he was winning the fight anyway but even though he was losing the round he didn't keep his head you know he ended up getting caught by a big shot that, that that wasn't, you know, it it wasn't really set up by anything. It was just a big winging shot that he, he let himself get caught up in. And he didn't need to do it. He didn't, like you said, Dan, you know, he didn't need to to be in in that range at that time with 45 seconds to go. He should have been on the outside. He should have just saw the fight out and he didn't. He made a mistake and, and, and he paid for it. Yeah, for sure. And historically speaking, the overhand right has always been an effective weapon 
against Southpaw. So I do have to consider that Josh Emmett was trying to land that the entire time. And I agree with you, man. He definitely deserved the bonus. But I kind of understand where the UFC are coming from, only in the sense that his post-fight speech, man, do not get on the mic and use that time to beg for a bonus. Get on the mic. He, what he should have done, in my eyes, to get himself a bonus was talk about all the shit he went through to get to this point. Just how amazing it feels to celebrate this KO win and to give back to the fans. You know, talk about that kind of shit. But as soon as you start talking about how UFC, you've never given me a bonus before, changed my life. Like, dude, that's a bad look. The UFC do not like it when people get on their knees and ask for money. Like, just... Don't do that ever again. You've never heard Justin Gaethje fucking be like, oh, I, I want a 50K for that because it's understood with his performances he's going to get 50K. So I really wish Emmett would have just made it more of an emotional moment in terms of the stuff he went through to get to this point, to get that big KO, how good he feels. Then he would have got the, the bonus. But still, I still think he re he deserved the bonus regardless. But I'm kind of saying... Too, and just, just, to, just to quickly intervene there as well because it, it's a good point that you brought up in regards to asking on the mic, and I think it is a known thing now. I, I, for the life of me, I cannot remember which fight it was. It was in this last run of the nine, though. I think it was a couple of cards ago. And uh, a, a fight, I think, you know what? It may have been Edmund, Edmund Sharbazian. And um, he he was having a conversation with Bruce Buffer before the fight, before Bruce announced the winner. And he didn't hear what, uh, what Edmund said to him, but what you heard back from Bruce Buffer, he turned around to him and he said, he said, yes, I agree. Don't mention it, though, on the mic. That's all you heard him say. So for me, you know, I, I believe that Edmund could have said something regarding a bonus and Bruce Buffer was just saying, look, I agree, but don't say it because the UFC don't like that. So I, I genuinely think, um, I think you're right, Dan. I think that is something that, uh, that the UFC may not like fighters to do on the mic. Yeah, definitely. So as far as matching up Emmett next, because he's got to get another big fight, wins over Lamas and MJ via knockout, that equals a big fight. So to me, what I'm thinking is oftentimes with these guys from Team Alpha Male, they fight a lot of the same guys. I've noticed that over and over again. You know, for example, they all have a history fighting Michael Johnson. Feely's been in there with him. Danny Castillo's been in there. Josh Emmett as well. Darren Elkins. So another guy that they have common opponents again is Mirsad Bektik. You saw Darren Elkins have that epic fight with Mirsad Bektik. Well, the fight I want to see is Josh Emmett versus Mirsad Bektik. For a long time, people have, have been telling me that Mirsad Bektik is a future this, future that. Okay, well, I want to see if that's the case. Both these guys have wins over Ricardo Lamas. Who who takes uh, the next step up the ladder? I want to see Emmett versus Bektik. Yeah, I, I mean, anytime that um, Mirsad Bektik steps in the cage, I'm going to be excited. And from a stylistic point of view again it's it's a good fight uh i actually think it it could potentially favor josh emmett that and the reason i say that is because i think his his hands are going to be going to be there obviously we've seen the power now um he he is going to be up there with the hardest hitters at 145 pound but it's the wrestling like I, i'm not sure whether bectic could uh could dominate the wrestling like he has done in against previous opponents so yeah for me i agree with you i i think it's um it's definitely a fight that could be made and a fight that would be very competitive as well, and especially in the, the featherweight rankings. For me, the fight I want to see with Josh Emmett, and uh, you know, there's going to be people uh, either shaking their head or smiling right now, I want to see that rerun with Jeremy Stevens, man, because Stevens is coming off... Uh, off the loss to Zabit, he's had his, you know, he had his moment against uh, a fighter that people are um, talking about a potential 
future champion or potential top three or title challenger or, or whatever you want to call Zabit Magomed Sharipov. So Jer- Jeremy Stevens has had that fight now. And so he's probably going to be looking back in regards to forwards because of, and only because of that loss. Not, I'm not saying anything detrimental to him as a fighter because we all know what Jeremy Stevens brings to the table and it's pure violence, pure excitement. But man, that that rerun with Emmett, you know, there's there was a little bit of bad blood instantly after, you know, Emmett was saying that, you know, he felt like a couple of the shots were unnecessary. And and also the mental game that goes into that, you know, Emmett's going to be stepping back into the cage against um, against the guy that did a lot of damage to him, you know. And, you know, how does he deal with that adversity? We've already seen him deal with the mental uh, the mental adversity that when he stepped in the cage with Michael, Michael Johnson last weekend, you know he couldn't have been totally 100% comfortable mentally. You know, he, he will have had some flashbacks in this fight and he, 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 he drove through it, man, and ended up getting the knockout, but stepping back into the cage against the guy, looking at, looking into the eyes of the guy that did a lot of damage to him in the previous fight, a guy that you also dropped as well, that not many people have dropped Jeremy Stevens. I want to see that rerun, man. Yeah, I mean, obviously they make that. I'm not. I'm not gonna turn away because the first time was chaos. The second time would be chaos as well. The only thing I know is if I'm Jeremy Stevens' manager, we're turning that down at all costs because you beat this guy as impressively as it gets. How are you gonna top yourself? And the answer is you're not gonna top yourself. You're gonna give Josh Emmett a chance to come in there and beat you and quote unquote erase what happened in the past, even though you can never erase how the the viciousness of what went down the first time they fought. So from from Josh Emmett's perspective, fuck yeah, I want to I want to avenge that loss. I want to go out there, right the wrong. He goes out there, gets a win over Jeremy Stevens. All of a sudden, he's got wins over Lama Stevens and Michael Johnson. So from Emmett's point of view, hell yeah. But from Stevens' point of view, fuck no, turn that down right away. But well, who does who does Stevens take if he doesn't take Emmett though? Because the guys that he's got in front of him, the the. The guy right in front of him is Zabit, who we just lost to. And then all the guys above him, Renato Moicano, Volkanovski, Frank Edgar, Brian Ortega, Jose Aldo, obviously the champion, Max Holloway. Like, Stevens is going to have to, he's going to have to come down a little bit. And the guy right behind him is now is Josh Emmett. So I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying in regards to, you know, turning it down because you've already been there, you've already done that. But Jeremy Stevens might not have many more options. What I want to see for Stevens is, and I don't know if my boy's still out, but I want to see Jeremy Stevens versus the Korean Zombie. That's a war I've wanted to see for a long, long time. But, hey, whatever they decide to do, I'm going to be tuning in. I just have an inkling that Stevens' uh, management isn't going to be in any kind of rush to accept an Emmett rematch. Now, Michelle Watterson defeated Karolina Kovacavich, and it was a very clean performance. I feel like Michelle's really been evolving her last three performances they've been very solid at least the last two the Courtney Casey one was you know could have gone either way but the last two have been 30 27 clinics and for me what I want to see next is because it's now or never for Michelle Watterson you really want to test yourself you really want to get up there I'm not interested in Michelle Watterson versus Tatiana Suarez or Michelle Watterson versus Cynthia Calvillo keep her away from those two what I want to see is Michelle Watterson versus the former champion Joanna Janjacek Two big names in that division. The winner obviously takes a step up. I know Joanna wants to get back in the mix. I know Watterson wants to make a case for a title shot. And fighting someone like Tatiana or Cynthia Calvillo, who are probably going to beat her and have much smaller names, that's not going to help Michelle out. Whereas you fight someone like Joanna, and I know she'll be an underdog in that fight, but if she can 
find a way to beat Joanna? Hey, that's an automatic title shot, my man. Yeah, I, I had a funny feeling uh, again that you're gonna that you're gonna choose this fight for Michelle Watson, but I just want to quickly mention Michelle Watson because for me, um, she was one of the more one of the more standout fighters on that fight card, and you know the fight may to some people may not have been that exciting, and there was other great fights on the card as we've already spoken about, but you've got to hand it and you've got to give credit to Michelle Watson because not so long ago people didn't really. Uh, see her as any sort of threat for you know for the top of the division and a fighter that may have peaked and started to come down a little bit I'm not going to use the word decline because I don't believe anybody thought that but just she'd she'd reached a peak basically and man her last few performances she's just looking better and better and skill set skill wise she's looking more improved as well I didn't think that she would be able to get uh, Kovalkiewicz down and keep her down and you know she did she didn't need too many opportunities to do so either but her striking was also decent as well and again Kovalkiewicz is known for her striking she's she's known as a good mover a good kickboxer and man I just feel that Michelle Watson is just steadily just improving step by step in in all aspects of uh of mixed martial arts and all aspects of a game and I, man that always i'll always give credit for that because that you can see she's working you can see she's working hard in the gym she's not ducking any fight she's not you know getting on the mic and making any un, uh unnecessary noise she's just going about a business fight by fight looking better looking improved evolving and i just love seeing that in a in a mixed martial artist now the fight i want for uh michelle watson is the the lady that's right in front of her in wiley zhang i i would love to see that fight for so many reasons i, I think that um wiley zhang's aggressiveness uh on the feet and Michelle Watson's karate style, moving backwards, throwing the throwing the kicks out, and trying to slow the uh, the pace of the fight to, to get the fight where she needs to be. I, I just think stylistically that'll be really intriguing to watch. And if Watson uh, opts to go to the mat with uh, with Wiley Zhang, who's going to get on top from the scrambles? Um, what? <laughs> how does Wiley Zhang uh, adapt to that? crazy good and i can't believe i'm about to say this but that crazy good head and arm throw you know it's not often that michelle watson actually messes those up you, you know we all know it's a technique that um that shouldn't really be used in in mixed martial arts because of how much of a disadvantageous position it can put you in um, when you actually hit the mat but michelle watson seems to be pretty pretty slick at him anyway and you know there's there's just a lot of aspects of, of that fight with zhang and watson that i just think would be uh, would be really entertaining to see I, I agree with you, man. It's a fucking hell of a fight. The only objection I would have is that that one of them would have to lose, right? Like one of them, one of their title hopes would get derailed by that fight. But the fight itself, I mean, technically speaking, I don't know who I who I'd favor. I mean, maybe Wiley just because of the size and all that. But dude, the way Michelle's been looking, and you mentioned that head and arm throw, and I know it's funny to joke around about head and arm throws in women's MMA, but that fucking head and arm throw she's got the technique on it, it was beautiful, because all, all these other girls, they kind of spam that move, it's their go-to, this and that, the technique, the execution, um, the leverage on Michelle Watterson's head and arm throw, it's very, very on point, so I'm cool, I'm cool with that fight with Wiley Zhang in terms of entertainment and fun, it'd be great, the only reason I want to go with Joanna and put Wiley Zhang against Claudia Gadelia is so that they can kind of 
get rid of the old wave and make their way into you know the new wave and get their own title shots. But if they match that up, I will 100% be watching, my man. So Paul Craig went out there, and he doesn't only have one win via submission with uh, with less than a minute left in the third round. Now he's got two because against Kennedy Neschuku, I mean, man, Kennedy was about to win an easy 29-27 decision. I say 29-27 because he did get a point deducted for an eye poke. Kennedy's very, very green, but man, he was winning that fight. It was about to be his his win, but you know, the thing with a guy like Paul Craig is you start teeing off on the guy, you get out of his first initial subs, and you start to think it's easier than it is. Then you start to get a little cocky. Then you start to abandon your defense. You start not listening to your coaches. All of a sudden, you get triangle choked with less than a minute left. It happened to Anka Live. Now it happened to Kennedy. And it's just one of those things. It's more about what Kennedy did wrong than what Paul Craig did right, in my humble opinion. Because I really do think, just stand back up, make the guy shoot again. The clock's about to run out. You're going to win an easy 29-27. But these guys get so carried away. They start exaggerating. They want to finish him so bad. They feel like, oh man, this guy, he's not on my level. I'm, I'm having so much success against him. And that's when uh, they make a mistake. You leave your limb inside the vehicle and Paul Craig will take it home. That's what happened. He choked him out with a triangle choke. I mean, I don't know what Kennedy was doing flopping to his back to get out of it. That's not the proper defense. But I guess in a panic situation like that, he did what his instincts uh, told him to do. And holy shit, Paul Craig has a third uh, performance of the night bonus. Yeah, and it's... uh... It's interesting you talk about the scorecards for this because obviously uh, we, we saw the scorecards after and uh, Kennedy on the judges' scorecards, one round one and round two, and obviously the fight ended round three, so there was no score on that, but you know, we we know Kennedy was winning that round. Anyway, now for me, I actually disagree with that slightly. I thought Paul Craig won that first round. And I in 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 my thoughts, with the way I scored the fight, I think the fight was about to hit a draw, man. Like, it would have disappointed a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. But um, what can you say about Paul Craig? You know, is, is a guy, let, let's just say, whether it whether I was right or, or, well, I wasn't right because the judge's scorecard said opposite, but um, whether my opinion was counting or whether, you know, you're looking at the scorecards as a whole, Paul Craig wasn't going to win that fight. So... For a fighter, for the for the second time in you know in a, in a few fights that he's about to lose a fight or about to not win a fight, to then pull that submission so late in a fight and the Ankalaev one will stick with me for, for life. You know, I had a bet on Ankalaev that night, and um, that that'll stay with me. But you can't the, the guy's heart and the fact that he he will fight to the end no matter what, and I I just like that about him and. You know, he, he's not looking phenomenal in his performances, but the the fact is he's he's getting wins when he's about to not win a fight. And you've got to have that admiration for him, man. Yeah, I mean, obviously you got to respect a guy as tough as him, but in terms of his skills on the mat... Yeah, he can come he can get an opportunistic submission at the end of a fight if someone is I just don't want to discredit him. But I really do feel like they were not flukes because it's not like the dude's not practicing his jiu-jitsu every single day. He's a fucking brown belt. I know he is. But it's like if Kennedy and Magomed and Kaliyev didn't have a lapse of judgment, they would have both been sitting here with unanimous decision victories. But the fact that they're not and the fact that Paul Craig is sitting here with two performance of the night bonuses because of the two uh, triangle chokes, you got to give Paul Craig all the credit in the world for that. So I do agree he's a very tough guy. But man... He's just not very 
skilled, I want to say, even though he's finding a way to tap these guys out. Like, it's impressive in that sense that he is the comeback king now in the light heavyweight division. But, man, the it's not going to it's not going to pan out in my opinion but the fight i want to see with him next is i just want to i just want to complete the trend and keep following exactly what what Sean Shelby and Mick Maynard have been doing with Paul Craig this entire time which is you test you test your up and coming prospects against Paul Craig that's the guy you feed the up and coming prospects to and you know exactly where they stand and this has been going on for years i mean the last 5 guys he fought Four out of five of them were undefeated prospects. The only guy that wasn't undefeated was, you know, Khalil Roundtree. But aside from that, Tyson Pedro, undefeated prospect. Magomed Ankalaev, Jim Crute, Kennedy Neschuku, all undefeated prospects. So what I have in mind, there's another undefeated prospect who actually happens to be a teammate of Kennedy Neschuku. And his name's Alonzo Manifield. And he also trains at the same gym. Like I just said, he's a teammate of Kennedy. He trains at Forest MMA too. I want to see Paul Craig versus Alonzo Menafield. That's the next undefeated prospect at 205 pounds. He's actually coming off a win over a jiu-jitsu guy. And there was a moment when things got a little sketch there. I want to see Alonzo Menafield versus Paul Craig. I mean, listen, Paul Craig's not a guy we're going to move up. There's not a guy the UFC is going to you know, put in there with any contenders or anything like that. It's going to be the same story. Next undefeated prospect on the list gets to fight him. And that next undefeated prospect is Alonzo Menafield. That's the fight I want to see. Man, it's so funny that you mentioned this name because, you know, when I was looking uh, looking earlier on at potential future matchups for Paul Craig, Alonzo Menafield was uh, was one of the names that I was going to say. And then I thought, you know, and I know he's an undefeated prospect and I, I get what I get what you're trying to say. But, man, I, I don't see Paul Craig coming uh, coming out of that fight conscious. Um, but funnily enough, the name that I've actually gone with is Alonzo Menafield's last opponent, Vinicius Mamouch. Man, I want to see that fight because um, I still stand by the stuff that I was saying about Vinicius Mamouch before that fight. The dude is honestly one of the best grapplers that I've seen at 205 pound period. The, he, he's so good, honestly. Like f- For anybody that, uh, that analyzes uh, grapplers and what they're doing and uh, looking at how good their jiu-jitsu is inside a cage, Vinicius Mamouch is a is an extremely high-level grappler at 205. Now, Paul Craig is, uh, you know, like we've, we've already mentioned, a grappler as well, grabbing these late submissions, looking for triangles, pulling guard. That's the fight I want to see. And I don't want to see that fight taking place on the feet. I want to see that fight on the mat. I want to see sweeps. I want to see reversals. I want to see submission attempts. And from an entertainment perspective, that fight could deliver on every single level. Yeah, I like that fight in terms of a grappler's delight, and I know where you're coming from. I know why you like that fight, you know, being that you love that style of fighting 100%. It would be fun. But, man, I have to stick to my guns and stick to the undefeated prospect versus Paul Craig because that's that's what we do with Paul Craig. We put him in there against our undefeated prospects. But I do have I do have plans for Mamouch too. I want to do Mamouch versus Kennedy Neschuku because Kennedy just went out there, lost to a submission guy, and clearly that's the one hole in his game that he needs to patch up. Well, they're not going to give him an easy road here just because he lost to Paul Craig. Now it's time to fight another guy coming off a loss who also brings the same, I want to say the same skill set, the same threat, but I, I would argue Mamouch has a better jujitsu pedigree than Paul Craig. He's a black belt. Paul Craig's a brown belt. Not that a brown can't beat a black, not saying that at all, but uh, but I mean, Adam, you and I both know Mamouche has got a higher jujitsu credential and pedigree than Paul Craig. So I want to see Kennedy get tested in that realm again. I want to see Kennedy versus Mamouche and Paul Craig versus Alonzo Menifield. What do you think? 
Yeah, I don't mind that either. the the only The only thing that I that I can't that I cannot get out of my head with that that fight with Kennedy and Mamouch is that fight doesn't exit that first round when Mamouch is on the mat with with Kennedy. So the positions that Craig was getting in in that in that first round against Kennedy, you, you're right. You know, Mamouch is the better grappler. He is the better submission artist. He is the black belt and. I'm, I'm telling you, if Kennedy gets taken down, and I said the same thing with Alonzo Menafield, and I still stand by that. When Mamooch gets gets his fighters to the mat, you're in a shitload of trouble because the, the dude is that good. It's just making sure that he can stay vertical. And, you know, if Kennedy does stay vertical, the, the flip side to Mamooch, and again, I, I said this in, in my previous breakdown of that fight as well, the flip side to Mamooch is the fact that the dude has got no striking defense <laughs> and not a great strike, not great striking offense either. So for how good he is on he is on the mat, he's totally the opposite on the feet. So it, it is literally for for Mamouche at this level in the UFC, it's a case of does he get the fight to the mat or doesn't he? Because if he does, he he will probably win a lot of fights most of the time when he's got a couple of minutes to work on the mat. But if he cannot get his opponent to the mat, he is very likely going to lose. So, again, it's, it's another interesting fight with Kennedy because Kennedy did look like he had some resilience to the to the takedowns of Paul Craig. I think Paul Craig is uh, a slightly different takedown artist than Mamouch. Mamouch sort of tries to get the body locks and trips and sweeps to the mat, but... Uh, Paul Craig was going in for the traditional singles, doubles, you know, trying to get the fight to the mat that way. So it's a different type of takedown that Kennedy will have to deal with and one that I don't think we've seen anybody try to do to Kennedy. So, yeah, it would be an interesting fight for sure. Yeah, and if there's one thing you need in, in the UFC, it's a ground game. So that's why I want to see him get tested against the same style that beat him the first time. And both are coming off losses, so that's why. But featherweight division man this is a fight we really wanted to see this was my fight to watch and it delivered man i know for a lot of you know quote-unquote casuals they might have not really i don't know for me this was a technical battle between sodiq yusuf and shaman marais and i was on the edge of my seat i thought that either guy could get knocked out at any point you saw the elbows landed by shaman marais the calf kicks by sodiq yusuf and it really came down it was one to one heading into that third round all came down to what happened in that third. It was the big right hand by Sodiq Yusuf that put down Shaman Marais that won him that that won him that round and in turn won him the fight. And man, I cannot wait to see both of these guys back inside the octagon, Adam. Yeah, I um, I actually think, and I'm not discrediting either fighter, and I'll explain why I'm not discrediting it. But I think the fight didn't deliver how we wanted it to. You know, we all expected violence. We all expected blood. We all uh, expected multiple knockdowns and and hurt calves and hurt legs. You know, we, we expected the works with it. But actually what we saw was an extremely technical performance from both fighters. And I'll, I'm going to say this about Sadiq because we we spoke about, and you know, all, all the guys that, that break down fights, you know, we spoke about how... Shane Marias is, uh, you know, he's a is a Muay Thai champion over in Brazil, and he's a very technical dude. And you can see he's got that um, those Muay Thai fundamentals, plodding forward, bit flat footed, but it, you know, it works for him. And to see Sadiq go toe to toe with a guy that's got so much, so many credentials in Muay Thai over in Brazil, you know national champion and all that to see Sadiq go toe-to-toe with a guy like that really shows you where 
Sadiq's ceiling is because it showed that he's not just this explosive guy that will take a punch to, to deliver a punch and uh, a guy that will push through um, any sort of aggression that uh, opponents throw at him and that he can use his size and his power to really bully people. He couldn't bully uh, Shaman Marias in the cage so he had to fight technical with him and listen Shaman Marias made some ridiculous in cage adjustments in that fight specifically to the low kick really started checking the kicks and you know turning his uh, his legs into them and after the first round Sadiq actually stopped with the frequent calf kicks because you know Marias uh, yeah Shaman Marias was reading them he was making the correct adjustments so for a Muay Thai champion with the credentials that Shaman Marias has got to 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 be in the cage use his experience make the correct in cage adjustments and Sadiq Yusuf who is at that level green you know I, again I'm not I'm not disrespecting Sadiq I, I said on my own podcast I think the dude is the real deal I think he's going to be up there I think he's going to be contending for the title at a later point in his career but when you look at the experience and from a technique perspective you know Shaman Marais had the edge in that fight and to to really see Sadiq handle Marais in that way absolutely flawless for me yeah 100% because mostly when guys go out there and beat Shaman Oftentimes, they don't want to stand toe-to-toe with him. They want to take him to his weak point, which is the mat. You know, you saw what Zabit did on the mat there. But for Sodiq to stand toe-to-toe with a guy like Shaman. And you mentioned how, you know, for it might not be the most entertaining fight in this snap. It was so entertaining to me because I know how powerful both those guys are. They're standing right in front of each other. And any shot, either guy could go down. And then you saw the calf kicks at first are working for Sodiq. But then Shaman makes the adjustment. He starts checking them. You know that shin on shin does not feel fun at all. I will tell you that right now. And then the second round, it was like, oh, shit. Shaman's getting off on these upward elbows. He landed a high kick. It's like he uh, faked to the body, then went up top. It was like, oh, man, Shaman might be turning it up. But then once Sodiq dropped him in that third round, he made that adjustment off that clinch break. I was like, yeah, man. Like this, uh, first of all, there's no loser in that fight. In my eyes, both those guys are complete studs. But for Sodiq, with the little experience he does have, you know, going from fighting goddamn Suman Mokhtari into here's Shaman Marais. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's such a big step up. And the way he handled it, I mean, I've known about Sodiq for a very long time. You know, obviously, you know that I've been told about this kid. I mean, I had him on half the battle before his first loss, right? So I've had him on since he was a prospect. I know the guy well. But to actually see him go out there and put on that kind of performance, man, that pure Nigerian power and just the fight IQ. The kid is serious, man, and what I had in mind for him, you know, obviously I personally want to see Sodiq versus Zabit, but I think Zabit might be a little bit ahead of him because he is coming off that win over Jeremy Stevens. Even though I think Sodiq would beat Jeremy too, the the way it works and the politics and all that is that when you do have that win over Jeremy Stevens, no matter what, you move up the ladder because he's that gatekeeper guy in the top 10. You get that win, all of a sudden now you're fighting the top dog. So I can understand Zabit turning down this Sodiq fight. Like, hey, I beat Jeremy Stevens. I'm beyond you. Okay, well, if that's the case, I want to go with Sodiq Yusuf's call out of Kron Gracie. And not because, not only because I think it would be an easy fight for Sodiq, but because stylistically speaking, you got the incredible striker in Sodiq Yusuf. Who, I mean, now let's let's go ahead and call him the 18-time Brazilian Muay Thai world champion, right? Because he just beat Shaman Marais. So let's go ahead and call Sodiq uh, a Muay Thai world champ, right? And with Kron Gracie... I mean, I'm sure you guys can tell me about his jiu-jitsu accomplishments. Uh, you know, he was out there grappling Benil in the jiu-jitsu scene. You know what I'm saying? Kron Gracie, he's no, and you saw his UFC debut. So drastic, stylistic, uh, 
differences, but them matching up inside the octagon, someone's going to get knocked out, someone's going to get tapped out. I want to see Sodiq Yusuf versus Crone Gracie, and I want to see it now while Sodiq's still young in his UFC career because pretty sure he's going to be way too big for a Crone Gracie. He's going to be way beyond that here in a little bit. But right now, if they're ever going to make that fight, now's the time. I'm going slightly different for this one, and uh, I'm going for an, an all all violence affair. I want Korean Zombie for Sadiq, man. Uh, I think it's uh, it's a nice step up. Not too much, so not like he's a beat step up. But, you know, Korean Zombie's uh, coming off uh, a loss. <laughs> it seems crazy to say that. But he's coming off a loss to Yair Rodriguez, sitting at 13th in the rankings. Man, match Sadiq up with, uh, with Chan Sung Young, the Korean Zombie, and just watch that violence unfold, man. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, I will never say no to a fight between Sadiq Yusuf and Korean Zombie. If if Chan Sung Jung is willing to take that fight, then fuck yeah, let's see it, man. I have a suspicion Chan Sung Jung is probably going to look at a Jeremy Stevens or, you know, someone that's coming off a loss with a bigger name. But hey, I know <laughs> I know that dude's got big balls and he, he'll fight anyone, anytime, anyplace. So if Chan Sung Jung wants to accept a fight with Sadiq Yusuf, sign me the fuck up. As far as Shaman Morais... Now tell me what you think about this matchup because both these guys are coming off decision losses. That's Shaman Marais and Enrique Barzola. Look, Enrique Barzola, obviously, he's the Peruvian national champ wrestler and he had a very close fight with Kevin Aguilar. A few adjustments, I think he comes back out there and gets back on the winning track. But here against Shaman Marais, we know the stand-up of Barzola has been exposed his last few fights. With a guy like Shaman Marais, you fuck up one time with him, you might hit the mat. So for that reason, I'm very intrigued by the prospects of a Barzola versus Shaman Marais fight. Yeah, and you know, anybody that knows me knows uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Barzola. I love that style and uh, I love the relentless wrestling. We, we didn't see it so much in the uh, the Aguilar fight last weekend. There's a few reasons uh, behind that that I'll go into. A, I'll, I'll imagine I'll go into a little bit later on. But in regards to the Shaman Marais and, uh, and Barzola fight, I think that's a very, very fucking tough fight for Barzola because Shaman Marais, we have seen glimpses of very good takedown defense, does all the right things. And although I believe that Barzola is improving in his striking, and I said this to you before the fight last weekend as well, Dan, you know, I, I genuinely think he's making strides in his striking over at American Top Team. is with some some good dudes over there like Pedro Munoz, etc. And um, we saw how improved Barzola was in that third round against Aguilar. He really turned it once he realized he wasn't going to get he wasn't going to get the takedowns that he needed in the fight and he was probably two rounds down and he started to he started to really settle into his striking knowing that he didn't need to force any sort of takedown and although he's making those strides and those improvements Marias his head and shoulders above him in in regards to striking. I'm not sure Barzola would get him down again this is all pre-tape but um I don't I don't hate the fight. I just think it's a bit of a mismatch for me. So what do you have in mind for uh, for both guys, for Shaman and for Enrique Barzola? For Enrique Barzola, um, I, I'm, I'm not sure, man. I, I, I really don't know um, where he goes from. I've not really put too much thought into, into either guy and, and, and what's next for them. Shaman Marias, I still believe, could get easily a top 15 fight even coming off a loss because I, I genuinely think the guy is good, you know. Um, I wouldn't mind seeing uh, a fight sort of maybe with Yair Rodriguez for, for Shaman Marais. I know Rodriguez is just coming off that win against Chan Sung Young, Korean Zombie, but we all know that 
that one second knockout was was the winning the winning shot. He was about to lose a comfortable decision. The scorecards were revealed afterwards, and I know we've mentioned this guy a lot in this uh, in this uh, podcast of half the battle, but. Jeremy Stevens, I know he's quite high up as well, and you can argue that these these fighters, Stevens and Yair, probably wouldn't want to take a fight with Shaman Marias, who is coming off a loss and he's outside of the top fifteen. But I think those are both fun matchups. And listen, especially for Jeremy Stevens, if he wanted a fight where he can really um, where he can really flourish and and demonstrate and put his striking on the line against a fighter that uh, is going to want to trade and strike back with him and looking to get a, a rebound win in his head then I don't think Marais is a bad name to have on, on your resume as a win. Um, like I say for Barzola, I've not really put too much thought into that dude right now. Well, speaking of Barzola, obviously he's coming off the loss to Kevin Aguilar. And Kevin, I mean, what a start to his UFC career going 2-0, winning uh, both decisions. And man, the guy just hits like a truck. And the fact that he was able to stuff the takedowns of Barzola... Was a big was a big statement in my eyes because we know Barzola pretty much takes down all of his UFC opponents at least when he attempts to. I know against Kyle Bochniak he wanted to test his striking in that one, but every single time Barzola decides that he's going to shoot on you, he usually successfully takes you down, and oftentimes it's a very uh, impressive slam where he picks you up like Matt Hughes, runs you to the center of the octagon, and puts you down on your butt. So I'm very impressed with Barzola, but I'm even more impressed with Aguilar for being able to defend those takedown attempts. And what I want to see with Kevin Aguilar, it's time for a step up. It's time to fight someone in the top 15. And I think there's a guy named Miles Jury who might not quite be sure where he stands in the UFC right now. He's coming off the loss, coming off two losses actually, but he looked better in the Feely fight than he did the Chad, the Chad Mendes fight. And I know if Andre, excuse me, if Miles Jury wants to stay in that top 15 of the UFC featherweight division, well, now it's time to welcome a young gun to the mix, and that young gun is Kevin Aguilar, and I call him a young gun. The guy's 17 and one as a professional, Adam. So now, what I'm thinking is Kevin Aguilar versus Miles Jury. What's your opinion? Yeah, I, I, I think I think it's a good fight, and I think it makes sense, especially with uh, with how good he's looked, and I. I just want to talk because I, I said I would touch upon it a little bit later on, and obviously that's come a little bit sooner. That I'm telling you that the reason uh, Kevin Ag- Aguilar didn't get taken down, and I I knew he was not going to get taken down in this fight and controlled sort of, uh, I would say between 90 seconds and two minutes of of this of that fight against Barzola. And basically, what he was doing, yes, he was doing the right things when uh, Barzola did eventually close distance. He was keeping his hips strong. He was getting his underhooks. He was defending the takedowns, throwing. Uh, Barzola off doing all those right things but in the striking is he had a game plan in that fight and it was very clear to me he was using uh he he was counter striking as he normally does that's his game but he was coming forward in bursts when he felt that Barzola was starting to you know think about a takedown and starting to come forward himself so basically when Barzola was sort of thinking of the takedown and edging forward slowly that at that point, that's where Aguilar was coming forward with the burst, the what the one twos, the one two three combinations, really pushing Barzola back in that moment. Then Barzola has to reset, he has to come forward again, and he has to try. But then every time he came forward, Aguilar would burst forward again, and you could tell that it's something that the drilled. And basically, what that was doing is that was stopping uh, Barzola's entries. So Barzola couldn't enter into a takedown at that point because, or not easily anyway. What Barzola likes to do is he does like to come forward with the reactive takedowns he'll probably miss the first shot and it'll get defended but then he can start chaining from there but without that first entry into the takedown Barzola really doesn't have anywhere to chain from there and I'm telling you that game plan that Aguilar had he executed that for two rounds and 
he didn't need to execute that in the third round because what he'd already done is made Barzola know that he can't take him down. Barzola was two rounds down and then he knew that Barzola wasn't going to win via wrestling. You know, Barzola had to go out and try and put him out. So the performance, the game plan and the execution from Kevin Aguilar was just absolutely on point that night and props to that guy. The fighter I want to see against Kevin Aguilar next, is uh, Hakim Dawadu. Uh, man, I, I, I don't know what it is about that fight. I just, again, I just feel it being fireworks. Hakim Dawadu loves coming forward. He loves being uh, aggressive. He's even got those <laughs> those cool, no-nonsense face facial expressions. And uh, he's just a whole aura about himself. He's just awesome to watch. Like I say, he's aggressive. He comes forward. He's got a Muay Thai background, which is stylistically matches really well against Kevin Aguilar because Aguilar is a very good counter striker that can come forward in, in bursts so a, a stylistic clash I do like the Miles Jory fight it makes sense as uh, a progression up the uh, up the rankings and like you say there's I'm sure Miles Jory is is having some thoughts about sort of where he stands in in, in this division right now but for me Dawadu and Aguilar screams fireworks yeah I completely agree man I didn't even think of that it didn't cross my mind seeing Hakeem Duwadu versus uh, Kevin Aguilar. And the reason I like that matchup is because unlike the jury fight that I suggested, the jury fight would kind of be like, jury would be the gatekeeper. Kevin Aguilar gets to test, am I ready for the top 15 or not? Whereas a fight that you suggested between Duwadu and Aguilar, I like that because it's almost like both guys are in the top 25. Who gets to take that step up to get that next big fight to enter the top 15? So if that's what uh, Sean and Mick want to do, I'm all for it. Now, a women's strawweight fight between Marina Rodriguez and Jessica Aguilar uh, took place. And, man, you know, obviously I had Marina Rodriguez in the parlay because every single person that listens to Half the Battle knows that I will bet against Jessica Aguilar any fight in the UFC and win long term. Didn't work out against Jody Escobar, but I've since gotten it back twice in a row. Now, man, even though it was, you know, 29-26, 29-27, all that the reason it's 29 and not 30 is because she did get a point deducted for the eye poke. So between you and me, it was really 30-26. That being said, the fact that Jessica Aguilar is going out there and closing your eye, man, I feel like Marina still needs a little bit of work before she really takes another step up. So what I had in mind for Marina Rodriguez is let's kind of build it up slow where she can get these wins over these aging names and get to really hone her skill. I want to see Marina Rodriguez fight the winner of Jessica Penney versus Jody Escabel. I feel like, you know, if Jessica Penney wins that fight, you know, she she has that history on tough. She's somewhat of a quote-unquote pioneer of the strawweight division, this and that. You know, she's from the first generation of strawweight fighters that came off that season of tough. So I feel like Marina Rodriguez having that win over Jessica Aguilar and parlay that with a win over Penney. I feel like then we can really talk about her getting that Alexa uh, Grasso fight or something among those lines because I don't want to rush Marina Rodriguez yet. I feel like she's very talented, very skilled, has a lot of potential, but she's still very green, needs to clean up some aspects of her game. So for that reason, Adam, I want to see her take on the winner of Panay versus Escobel. Yeah, and man, I, I, think Ag uh, I think Aguilar is a harder fight or was hard if I know that seems crazy me saying that after we saw what a one-sided beatdown that was but I think Aguilar is a tougher opponent for um for Rodriguez than than both uh Pene and, and Escabel so um for me in my opinion I that I get where you're coming from you know you're wanting to build a prospect and from a matchmaker's perspective um Sean and, and Mick you know part of their job is to build prospects for the UFC but 
I just feel that it would be a step backwards from from Aguilar, if, if I'm being totally honest. Now, I for me, what I want next for Marina Rodriguez is I want that that rebooking of uh, Alexa Grasso, and I'll tell you why. So, first of all, in regards to uh, a step up, I think it's a step up for sure. Grasso, for me, hasn't really set the the world alight since she's come into the UFC. You know, she was pretty hyped prospect. Obviously, really good-looking female as well. So the UFC had all things covered with with Alexa Grasso, um, especially after the performances she was putting on in in Victor as well. But she just doesn't look like the same fighter that since she's come into the UFC. She looks quite timid, a little bit gun shy, and yeah, she's got wins and stuff like that. You know, beat Randa Marcos. That's a good win. Um, I know she got taken down a few times in that fight, etc. But the reason why I feel that this is a good fight for Marina Rodriguez is because a, it's a test to to improve drastically. You need those tests. Yes, you can go uh, beating, uh, you know, beating the the lower level competition and you know gaining confidence from those wins. But in regards to really testing yourself inside the cage, I think that's where the development really comes. And then once you start getting those decent names on on your record as wins, then that propels yourself up the rankings. That gets you the better fights. That gets you the bigger uh, money on your contracts, etc. And I just think with Alexa Grasso, the fight is pretty much guaranteed to take place on the feet. And for me, that's where... Uh, Marina Rodriguez is going to flourish. That's the style versus style where she's we're really going to be able to see what she's about. She's really going to be able to let that Muay Thai go. She's really going to be able to to start putting it on the girls, getting in the clinch, throwing the vicious knees, the vicious elbows. That's you know that classic. Old, I keep saying this with her, the classic old school Anderson Moy Anderson Silver Muay Thai style. You know, and I just feel right now in the UFC, obviously she she's had two fights in, in the UFC, Randa Marcos and Aguilar. Randa Marcos, we all know what her game plan is. It's to close the distance, take you down to the floor and uh, really work on you there. And, you know, the, the same could be said for Aguilar as well. She didn't want to strike with that girl. She would have wanted uh, she would have wanted that fight on the mat for sure. And I just feel that Marina Rodriguez, I would just really like to see her in a fight where she's not concerned of the takedown threat and she can just really free her mind of, um, of, of having that, doubt that if she overextends or if she overcommits that she's you know she's going to get closed up the distance is going to be closed and the takedown threat is going to be there she's going to have to start trying to defend takedowns when all she really wants to do is stand in the middle of the cage and really let her skills flourish so i want that rebooking of the alexa grasso fight and for me i feel that's that's her best fight i'm you know i'm down to watch it man so last but not least we got to talk about the catchweight bout between casey kenny and Ray Borg, which ended in a controversial decision, according to many. Now, I just have to preface it by saying I did have the plus 260 on Casey Kenny, so no matter what I say, there is a little bit of bias in there, but I'm doing my best not to be biased because I got a lot of respect for both guys. I've had them both on half the battle more than once. I mean, Casey Kenny, obviously, prior to his Contender Series fights, Ray Borg, I mean, I had this dude on the show, like, I think within my first 10 episodes of having the show, so... You know, I, I got a lot of respect for both of them. The reason I took the plus 260 is I thought it was going to be a really, really close fight. And it turns out it was a close fight. So and from from the betting perspective, because I know people are acting like they got robbed on Ray Borg and this and that. Listen, let's say Ray Borg would have won the fight. From a betting perspective, I still feel like I took the right side because in a fight that close, 
I mean, are you more comfortable parlaying a minus 400 or are you more comfortable taking a one-unit shot on a plus 260 dog in a fight where at the end of it, I mean, me and Shaq were asking each other, shit, man, I mean, do we win? Do we lose? Like, it could have gone either way. Like, I literally thought it could have gone either way. Now, watching it live, what Ray Borg did really well was his slams. And what this fight actually reminded me of was Ray Borg's UFC debut against Dustin Ortiz where he actually lost a split and he had the same kind of Matt Hughes slams where he'd pick him up run him across the center of the octagon, put him down. The issue was similar to the Ortiz fight here and the Kenny fight is when he did that, he wasn't able to maintain that top uh, control and he got reversed and that's what happened here with Kenny. And also, you look at the strike stats, I mean, Casey Kenny clearly outstruck him, even dropped him uh, with that with that leg kick. So it really came down to how you score those last two rounds because I thought the third round was pretty clear. I mean, I thought the first round was pretty clear that Casey Kenny won the first. comes down to how you score the second and third. So, man, second round is really damn close. Ray Borg has a big slam, but then Casey Kenny ends the round in side control. So it's like, how, how do you score that one? Then the third round, man, Casey Kenny is doing exactly what I, what I want. He's got Ray Borg's back. And then all of a sudden, Ray Borg reverses the position. He slams Casey Kenny again. That's like, oh, no, less than a minute left. Come on, Casey. Then Casey gets on top again. So my whole perspective of, of you know, the way everyone's viewing it is, Listen, Ray Borg's been through a really tough time in his personal life, and we're all rooting for Ray Borg. We all want to see Ray Borg do well. And in a close fight like this, you know, Ray Borg's the bigger name. Ray Borg's the former number one contender, you know, quote-unquote, who the fuck is Casey Kenny? I get why people wanted Ray Borg to win, why they thought Ray Borg won. You're rooting for the guy. I mean, you want to see someone who's been through what he's been through do well, and I do too. But man, I'm not. I'm really not under the impression uh, under the impression that Ray Borg actually clearly won that fight. And I don't give a fuck what any media members say on that website because I mean, if you look at their names, if you look at ha who half those guys are, they don't know what the fuck they're watching. Anyways, those guys aren't credible sources, so I don't give a fuck what any website says about what media members had it for Borg because all those media members were rooting for Borg anyways. So my honest opinion was that it was a very close fight that could have gone either way. But I really believe it's disrespectful to call it a robbery. And that's just my personal humble opinion. Yeah, I mean, first of all, in regards to the betting perspective, you know, you're absolutely on the money. Anybody that's that's taken a minus 400, uh, a minus 400 favorite. And listen, it's happened to the best of us. You know, you, you're not going to be the first. You're not going to be the last. But anybody that takes sort of a minus 400 favorite in, in a close fight like that, you're on the wrong side. In, in regards to where your money is unless you win and then you know you're on the right side but it's still not the greatest bet if that makes sense so I, I totally agree with with what you're saying I also totally agree that Casey Kenny won won the first round of the fight you know um I don't think that's really up for discussion but man I do think that um I do I do feel really badly for Ray Borg in regards to the fact that he didn't get his hand raised that night and you know yes obviously I was rooting for him so was Everybody else, you know, I'd, I'd even imagine Casey Betters not really being uh, being too fussed if Ray Borg won, just because you know that that was that was the outcome that that was going to be most satisfying. But taking all that aside, which I, I can allow myself to do, you know, yes, like I said, I was rooting for Ray Borg, but when when I'm looking at the fight and when I'm scoring it, I'm not thinking, oh, okay, well, uh, Ray Borg, that that was a close, that was a close round, but I give it to Ray Borg because he's been going through a hard time, etc. I don't think like that, man. I'm I'm scoring this fight as I'm seeing it, and I genuinely think that Ray Borg won round two and round three via um, via takedowns. Yes, you know, uh, Casey Kenny was 
creating scrambles, reversing and getting on top as well. But then Ray Borg would just get back up and he would dump him again. And Casey would stand back up and he would dump him again. And the, in in rounds that are close in a lot of aspects, when, you, when you're constantly seeing uh, a fight... From a judge's perspective, anyway, when you're constantly seeing one fighter over the shoulder of the other and getting con- getting dumped time and time again on the mat, you know, yes, he wasn't doing much after the Borg wasn't doing much after that in regards to grappling and holding him down, but the fact that he kept on getting his hands locked, he kept on picking him up and he kept on putting him to the mat, it has to count for something. It has to score points. And clearly in the judge's eyes that night, it didn't. And the other thing to take into consideration as well, and I'm not going to go too much into depth of the, the old rules and the new rules and what's the difference, etc. But these were supposed to be the old rules scoring. Now, part one part of the new rules, again, a lot of things have changed, but one, one small part of the new rules is that... Um, the, the grappling's more effective and the wrestling is slightly less effective. So basically what that means is the judges aren't really going to score uh, takedowns as highly anymore because that was one of the things that a lot of people complained about in the old rules. The fact that takedowns were just scored way too, way too highly. People over uh, overthought the takedowns and, you know, in, in the new rules, that's one thing that, that they've slightly cut back on. But, that fight, the this that fight last weekend was supposed to be scored on the old rules, where the takedowns were counted for more than what they are with the new rules, and yet still, it it clearly didn't count for anything. They they scored round rounds two and three to to Kenny for clearly the 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 slightly more volume in the striking and the fact that he could stand up to his feet and for me I think what Ray Borg did in round two and round three completely outweighed what Casey Kenny did I I you know I, I don't think we're gonna I, I genuinely don't think we're gonna agree on this you know and that's fine this is mixed martial arts and uh, different things happen people see things different ways and I'm totally comfortable with people that don't think that uh that Ray Borg was hard done by, but for me, I think he was. And I think that's completely fair. I think I live in a free country, but we're allowed to have a different opinion. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. I mean, that's exactly why I had you on the show, my man. And dude, let's wrap this thing up, man. It's been over 90 minutes. Uh, thank you so much to all the fans for checking this out. Thank you to you, Adam, for coming on here, man. It's uh, been a pleasure. All the fans can follow you at Newsome underscore MMA. And, uh, you have a message for them about this uh, ATL podcast you're doing? Yeah, absolutely, man. First of all, thanks for having me on the on the podcast as well. I've really enjoyed it. You know I always love talking fights with you. I'm always down to come on half the battle. So uh, don't be shy. Even if you need a third man for, for yourself and Shaq, uh, I've not spoke with Shaq on a, on a podcast, so it'd be cool to get on with him as well. So always down to get on half the battle for sure. So uh, thanks again, man. And yeah, the ATL card... 100% going to be stacked, full of violence. I know you go into the card, Dan. I know you're excited. So for that reason, you're going to be coming back on the Newsome MMA podcast, which we'll, re- we'll be recording during fight week at some point, you know, when it's best for me, yourself and John um, to, to organize a time. But excited to have you back on that. Excited to be breaking down more fights with you, man. Absolutely. And once again, everybody, make sure you follow Adam at Newsome underscore MMA. He's killing it over there in the UK. I'm happy to see your success, man. So keep it up. And for all the fans that have the battle, thank you guys so much for checking out this very special UFC Philly recap edition. And just thank you guys for all your support over the years. All I got to say is we're all the way up and uh, big things coming. That's all I got to say. Make sure you follow me on Twitter at Best Fight Picks. Go to bestfightpicks.com for the plays. Subscribe to Half the Battle on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Stitcher, and Spotify. And until the next time, let's cash these bets.